Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, this is Mom, and I'm an executive producer of HGB because, well, Diane is my daughter and Denise is my daughter-in-law. So I kind of have to, but I actually do love the podcast. Plus, they've let me co-host a couple of times. Besides, I love history. If you'd like to join me as an EP, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Now, sit up straight, get your feet off the coffee table, and don't tempt the spirits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to the 199th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going to Philly. Yay, the city of brotherly love. And we are going to be joined on our trip by a fabulous tour guide. Dina Marie, who is the host of the Twisted Philly podcast, will be joining us shortly to share a little bit about her city and a lot about the Philadelphia City Hall, which she absolutely loves. It will come across as you listen to her. And if you're not listening to her podcast, we highly recommend that you do so. Yes, and her passion for this location is second to none. And she definitely tempted the spirits as in me and Diane and has offered to take us personally around the city. And so I have added that to the list big time. Before we get into talking about that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Amber. Hey, Amber. Tammy. Hello, Tammy. Paula. Hi, Paula. And Carmen. Hey, Carmen. And now this moment, Naughty. This moment in oddity was suggested by Brianne Barr. Detective Steve Wright arrived at 1114 Fountain Drive in Atlanta on a warm evening in September of 1987. It was just after midnight and the precinct had received a very unusual phone call. Minnie and William Winston were an older couple and not given to weird imaginings. Minnie had called and reported that there were weird red blotches appearing on the walls of their home. The red liquid seemed to be oozing from the house. Detectives searched the house and were very concerned as they recognized that the substance was blood. There was so much blood everywhere, from the hallways to the bathrooms to the kitchen, even under the appliances, that the detectives believed someone had been bleeding profusely in the house. Neither member of the septuagenarian couple was bleeding, and they had no visible wounds. Samples were collected and sent to the lab for testing. The blood was found to be human in origin and was type O. Neither of the Winstons had that blood type. The press and people started hounding the couple when the news broke that their house had spontaneously bled. 
The incident only happened one evening, and the police were never able to figure out where the blood originated. A bleeding house certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of April, on the 10th, in 1945, the Nazi concentration camp at Buchenwald was liberated by U.S. troops. The SS began construction on Buchenwald in July of 1937 outside of Weimar in Germany. This would be one of the first camps of its kind and was meant to hold criminals at first. But when World War II started in 1939, Buchenwald imprisoned Jews, gays, Jehovah's Witnesses, political prisoners, and homeless people. German companies used the prisoners as slave labor. A total of 238,980 people were held at Buchenwald and 56,545 perished. By the end of the war, Buchenwald was the largest concentration camp. After the liberation, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, Dwight D. Eisenhower, wrote, Nothing has ever shocked me as much as that sight. U.S. troops forced German civilians from nearby towns to visit the camp so they could see the carnage in their own backyards. Philadelphia is the largest city in the state of Pennsylvania, and it is known as the City of Brotherly Love. In 1871, construction on the beautiful and uniquely designed Philadelphia City Hall began. It took 30 years to complete and was topped with a statue of the man who founded Philadelphia and for whom Pennsylvania is named William Penn. American history has its heart in Philly. This is where the Founding Fathers gathered to declare the country's independence. It is only fitting that the city would be represented with a magnificent city hall. Dina Marie of the Twisted Philly podcast joins us on this episode to share her love of the city, the history of the building, and the hauntings that are taking place within its walls. All right. Well, we are joined by Dina Marie, who is the host of the Twisted Philly podcast, which happens to be one of my favorite podcasts out there. How are you, Dina? I'm doing great. How are you two? We are doing well. And when I say favorite, that means because I listen to loads and loads of podcasts. I know you do too, Dina. I do. Is that this is like when you drop a show, I have to listen to it. I don't just so get to it eventually. I have to listen to it right when you get it dropped. So that's so awesome. I'm a huge fan of your show too. So it really means a lot to me that you would say that. Well, what's fun is we share a lot in common. I think we all have a morbid curiosity. We have a love for history. We like creepy stuff and we like Disney. Yes, very much so. (laughs) But one of the other things that we share in common now is we've all been on a Pleasing Terrors ghost tour in Charleston. We have. That story that Mike shared about when he met you is fantastic. He actually made me tear up when I heard that. And for people who don't know, Mike Brown, who's the host of Pleasing Terrors, was interviewed on podcasts we listened to. It's a brand new podcast out there. And what's neat about that podcast is that sometimes you don't get to know the host very well, especially when they have the kind of setup that Mike does, where he doesn't really talk too much about himself. He just tells you a story. And so it was neat to get to hear him say that stuff. And it it was really fun when we did that because we didn't know him either. It was just like, this looks like a great 
ghost tour. It's supposed to be the best one in town. So let's go ahead and try it out. And it's just been a phenomenal friendship that we struck up. And he does a great podcast, too. He sure does. And I totally agree. That tour is probably the best hauntings and history tour I've ever taken. Yeah. And what I loved about it is that sometimes you get a feeling like the person who's doing it is an actor who was looking for a gig. (laughs) And Mike's not that way. He is actually a historian and he loves the history and haunting. So it's very cool. It was a really fun tour. I really liked it. All right. Well, now that we've given Mike a huge plug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all big fans of his show. So that is true. What I'd love to know is what got you interested in starting your own podcast? Oh, so I was listening to podcasts for a while and I really enjoyed the medium and I like telling stories. I'm a little bit of a talker and I was months that I thought about doing a show and I was really on the fence. I knew nothing from the technology perspective. Like I I knew I wanted to tell stories and I was comfortable doing that, but I, I didn't know the first thing about getting this going. And a buddy of mine that I used to work with knew that I'd had this interest. And so he sent me a link one day and it was 27 steps to getting your podcast on iTunes. And he said, now there's nothing holding you back. I'd started listening to Apex and Abyss, which is a true crime show. And when I heard the host's voice, I said, that's a Philly girl. (laughs) And because, you know, if there is an unmistakable Philly accent, I have it. The host of Apex and Abyss has it. And I'd reached out to her on social media as we all have these social media presences. And she was so great. And I'd said to her, you know, I've I've been thinking about starting a podcast. I'd actually had probably five episodes already mapped out from an outline and what I wanted to talk about. And she was so supportive and sweet and just really inspired me to go ahead and do it. So I have Erica from Apex and the Abyss to thank for getting over my hump of, I don't know how to be perfect, so I shouldldn't do it. That's garbage. Mm. Perfection is garbage. <laughs> it leads it leads to procrastination. So oh, absolutely. And if you wait until you're ready, you're never gonna do it because you're just gonna keep telling yourself, oh, I sound stupid. Nobody's gonna listen to me. Yeah, and that's what I was doing. And then my daughter, she's a teenager, but she's, God, this kid is so smart. When I dropped the first episode, I said, well, I guess I'm a podcaster. I don't know if people don't listen. And she said, it doesn't matter if anybody listens. You created a podcast. You're a podcaster. That's all that matters. Absolutely. That's and what I thought, That's, yeah. So so that was sort of my, my journey. And it's been over six months now. And even if I didn't have one listener, I would still do this every week because I am in love with doing this. I'm in love with podcasting. Well, we know the feeling. We're exactly there with you. And what's really cool about your podcast is it's unique because you never know what you're going to get when you listen to an episode. It's not like you have the same setup every time. She might take us into Philly and tell us a little bit about the history of a particular building, or Dina might take us over here and say, here's a true crime that happened here. Or we might go over to the Mutter Museum and look at some morbid curiosity type stuff. That's what I love about your show. It's like it loads up. I see a title, Unicorn Killer. Oh, my gosh. What are we talking about here? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Earth Day that goes into which was your most recent podcast. And then all of a sudden you end up with a serial killer at the end of the Earth Day stuff. And yeah, I just love that it's unique that way. Why don't you tell the listeners from your own vantage point what your podcast is about? Sure. Thank you. So it's a mix of, like you said, true crime, haunted history, history without hauntings, cool or creepy places to visit. It's really my favorite stories about Philadelphia and other parts of Pennsylvania, but mostly Philadelphia. Um, I'm a huge history buff, especially revolutionary history. And there's so much of that in Philly. 
And at the same time, we've got some really bad true crime stories. So it's a real mix. And that's one of the things I like about it. I, you know, as much as I enjoy true crime, I, I can't stay in that space all the time. It's just way too heavy. Yeah. And, and I love ghost stories. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your show. I was listening a few days ago to the Legends of Fairies episode. And I love that about your show, too, that I get a mix of history. I get some legends. I get ghost stories. It's It's got a lot of different subject matter. And so, so yeah, it's just it's a mix of a lot of different stories. But all of them are somewhat macabre, I guess I would say. Twisted. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and twisted, twisted right? That makes a lot more sense than macabre. <laughs> well, we're excited to have a personal tour guide when we make it up to Philadelphia again. Yeah, we. I would love that. Yeah, we've managed to spend six whole hours in your city, and it was because we had a layover on a flight over to Italy. And I looked at Denise and I went, because I love American history. And I'm like, okay, we're going to be near the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, and we have six hours. We have to make that happen. And so we did. We jumped on the train that they have that goes out to the airport, and we managed to get down there and run around quick and take pictures and get back. We met uh, Miss Miss Philadelphia, too. We did. She was hanging out over there. And she even took a picture. You'll appreciate this, Dina. She took a picture with Duffy the Disney bear. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes I take the bears with us, but you know, you never know what you'll get out of me. We have a we have a Duffy too and he's even though my daughter's 16, Duffy still goes. He's with her now in Arizona. She's on a trip visiting some family and he goes right in her backpack. Awesome. See? She's <laughs> she's our kind of people. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Dina, we were just wondering with your podcast and ghost stories and all of that, what got you into the paranormal? For as long as I can remember, I've been interested in ghost stories. I mean, even when I was little, I think it's probably a fascination with Stephen King. I was 11 when I read my first Stephen King book. It was Pet Cemetery, And just growing up in Philadelphia, knowing so much about the history of the city. And I live now right near Valley Forge Park, where, you know, obviously the Battle of Valley Forge was and General Washington was stationed there. Just hearing stories of, of ghosts, probably primarily at least to start from so many of the battlefields we have out here. So I would say between Stephen King and, and history, that's really what sucked me into the paranormal. And, you know, and then I, I love shows like Buffy and Supernatural and horror movies. So just kind of stuck from a young age. That's where you'll be similar to Diane with the horror movies. I have all sorts of rules before I'll even watch one. They creep me out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I have to watch a lot by myself. <laughs> or go on. You went on a daddy daughter date. I did. I got my dad to go see Life, the most recent, uh, that movie that just came out. So, Oh, nice. Well, I know the answer to this question, but would you share with the listeners if you've had any kind of paranormal experiences? I have had what I believe are paranormal experiences. So one of my earliest ones was in suburban Philadelphia. It was in a an area called Militia Hill, which is in a, a, a town called Plymouth Meeting. So it's like a little subset of that town. And it was at my ex-husband's parents' house, although at the time we were dating. So this is going back to probably the early 90s. And their house was over 200 years old. And, wow. you know, I mentioned there's so much history in this part of the state from the Revolutionary War, Civil War II, like Gettysburg. And we were outside one night at his parents' house and they had a, a gravel driveway and a, a huge spotlight up on an electric pole that would illuminate the yard if there was any motion. And we were standing outside talking next to his car and we just we heard footsteps on gravel and thought maybe one of his friends had pulled up on the street and was walking up the side of the driveway. There was nobody there. And we turned around and 
along the side of the house, we saw a shadow walking, moving along the side of the house. And it, it looked like a Union soldier. And I flipped. I, I was saying I was probably using a little bit of profanity at the time. I'm sure. And, and to him, it was like the most natural thing in the world. And he said, you know, well, sweetheart, there's so many battles and history that happened here. It's not surprising that we would see something like that. Like it was just perfectly normal and, and organic. And for me, I'm like, that's a ghost. That's a stinking ghost right there. So I, I tell people that story. Some people believe it. Some people think I'm out of my mind, but I, I have a witness to that one. So I feel like that one's really solid because I wasn't the only person who saw it. Exactly. Those are the ones that I cling to when it's a shared experience. And I can't yeah. believe he was just so nonchalant. Yeah, there's a ghost walking by. Yeah, I would have been like you flipping out. Seeing a full bodied apparition is very unique. So, And it was, ju it was just a shadow. I mean, we didn't see whatever was casting the shadow. Oh, that's um, even it, weirder. Yeah, it was just the shadow. It wasn't you, you didn't see a figure, an outline of a man. We just saw a shadow moving along the side of the house and you heard the footsteps on the gravel. That blows my mind because you're thinking something has to have substance to throw a shadow. Right. Wow. That's all amazing. we saw was a shadow. See, pretty creepy there, Denise. Very creepy. I would have been wearing my pants and then like <laughs> running or something. I would have needed depends at an early age. There, there's so many ghost stories all over Pennsylvania. So many places in Philadelphia are reported to be haunted, like Betsy Ross's house. I, I talked about that location a few weeks ago. The cemetery where Ben Franklin is buried, they say his tombstone is haunted with the ghost of Ben Franklin. Hmm. People have gotten into the habit of tossing pennies on his tombstone, you know, for one of the, the quotes that he that he shared. And unfortunately, what it's done is it's caused damage to the marble surface of his tombstone. So his stone is being refaced and, you know, hopefully people will, will stop that tradition. But there are reports that occasionally when somebody tosses a penny on his tombstone, it'll be thrown back at oh. the person who tossed it. Interesting. As if, he, as if he's had enough. He doesn't need any more pennies. So <laughs> you can take it back. <laughs> take your money back. Okay, I would so love to be there and go through all of those. Because like you said, I just know from what little time we're there, there's so, 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 so much history there and lots of stamps to get my national passports book and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, this is where our government basically got started. Mm -hmm. So all of that would be right there. It is. And there's so much more than just a few things I mentioned. I mean, you saw the Liberty Bell and, and Independence Hall. And there's just so many lodges and inns that have been converted into restaurants, you know, in the suburban Philadelphia area, anywhere within 20 to 45 minutes outside of the city. And they have plaques. George Washington slept here or Ben Franklin was here. Somebody else was here. And, and all of them come with their own tales of ghost stories and doors opening and closing on their own wait staff that go into the basement to get supplies. They see somebody lurking that disappears around a corner. There, there's so many ghost stories up here. And, and I love it. And it gives me lots more stories to tell on Twisted Philly. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Dina, we've been trying to do an episode together and just trying to figure out, well, what do we want to talk about and what should we focus on? And I was looking at places of, well, maybe we should do something she hasn't done. And I wasn't sure. And then I was listening to the episode that you did on City Hall there in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. And obviously, it's a place that you 
like because you've used it as the logo for Twisted Philly and twisted it up. It's very clever. And when I was listening to you talk about it, I went, this is what she needs to come on our show and talk about because your love for that building came through clearly. I just was like, wow, this is somebody who not only is like, oh, that's a really cool building we have in town. It is a really cool design and everything. But you could just tell that you love this building, that you love passing by it, that you can see it when you're driving into work. And so I was like, you know, this is what I want to have is somebody who genuinely loves something like that. And then to find out that there's maybe some haunting activity going on there as well. It just makes it perfect for us. Oh, I, I was so excited when you brought that up because I do. I absolutely love this building. I love the history of how it came to be. I love how majestic it is and how ornate and ostentatious it is because when you stand at an upper floor in one of the skyscrapers that we have now that are all metal and glass and then there's this juxtaposition of City Hall with all of the gingerbread and 200 statues. It's like, how did this get here? And it's just, it's remarkable. And and you're right. Every morning when I drive into the city of Philadelphia, when I see that clock tower, it doesn't matter how much traffic I've sat in or how grueling my day might be. I see that clock tower and I'm just so happy. So I'm a little ridiculous and obsessed with City Hall. <laughs> um, but I, I love that you invited me and asked me to talk about it. So thank you. Well, William Penn sits on the very top of it. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about him? Obviously, yeah. he's who Pennsylvania is named after. He is. So William Penn is the founder of Pennsylvania. He's really the designer of the entire city of Philadelphia. And about 200 years before City Hall construction even began, so Penn landed in Pennsylvania in the late 1680s, he selected a part of the city, and it was none of it was developed at that time, but something that he thought one day it would become a center square and it would be intended for public offices like local city government. And it really took over 200 years since that time for us to do anything with that part of the city. So, you know, when you fast forward to the 1800s and Philly is huge. We had over a half a million residents at that point. And it was time to really look into, we need some sort of a, of a city hall. We need some sort of a building for legislature and government. And it wasn't just that, like Philadelphia was looking at cities like New York and DC, and we were starting to feel kind of small. So the idea was that there would be a new structure to support Philly government that would be the tallest building in the country and hopefully the tallest building in the world. And that never happened. We never became the tallest building in the world, never became the tallest building in the country. It certainly was the tallest inhabited building in the United States, but it took 30 years for the building to be finished. So construction started around 1871 and it didn't finish until the early 1900s because throughout those 30 years, there were so many changes in technology. So every time electricity and then elevators and then advancements in indoor plumbing, it's like, all right, well, we're going to delay again because it'd be really nice to have lights in this room. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, right. So it took, it took 30 years to build. And by the time it was finally done, the Washington Monument was already built. The Eiffel Tower was already built. So we never got a chance to be the build, the biggest building in the city. But William Penn sits on the top of City Hall. It is the largest sculpture in the country, at least a sculpture that adorns a building. And it's one of over 200 to 250 sculptures that are either in the building or on the building or outside the building. He also gets us another 34 feet, which gets this, you know, which makes the building one of the tallest in the country. And it took two years just to cast the 14 pieces that it would take to put together that sculpture of William Penn because it's it's 37 feet tall. 
It's massive. And initially, he wasn't on the clock tower when he was first built. It took a while to get him up on the clock tower. So the statue was standing just in the center courtyard of City Hall when um, when it was first done. And the same sculptor that did William Penn did all of the sculptures in and around the building. It's just, it's amazing. And I'm obsessed. I'm constantly taking pictures of the building. I'm constantly taking pictures of William, the statue of William Penn because I just, I love it. I love it. I love that Philly wanted to be the biggest and the best and we didn't and we didn't quite get there because that feels like philly all the time right we're not new york we're not dc but there's just this feeling of community when you come here and you know maybe we don't have to be the biggest and the best we've got something else that's unique you know that we're kind of an underdog and uh, i think city hall is a little bit of an underdog as far as a building goes i can't believe that that is made out of 14 pieces and looking at a picture of it it is it's so massive that it was standing on this pedestal that i'm looking at and a man is as tall as the pedestal so about 6 foot and yeah. he just towers above these people that are standing around it it really reminds me of Gulliver's Travels because I've, yes. I've, I have some pictures like that. There's one with a, a whole crew of men standing around it. And it was before they started working on elevating it to the top of the clock tower. And it looks like Gulliver and the men standing around it look like the Lilliputians uh-huh. from Gulliver's Travels because it is just massive. The fun thing about William Penn is no buildings were taller than City Hall until until the 80s. So once a building was taller than City Hall... Philly stopped winning championships. Our sports teams stopped winning things like the Stanley Cup and the World Series. And our hockey team, the Flyers, were just fantastic in the 70s. The Phillies, I mean, they won the World Series in in 1980. I'll never forget. Tug McGraw came to my elementary school. It was just fantastic. And then a building called Liberty One went up. And it was really one of the first real modern skyscrapers we ever got. All metal and glass. And it was taller than William Penn. And that's when the city thought we had the curse of William Penn because once people started making buildings taller than the top of William Penn's hat, we never won another championship. Oh, Oh, that is bizarre. Yeah. Wow. So we're superstitious up here too. Apparently just a little bit. I've also heard that you guys (laughs) would sometimes put the jerseys and stuff up on the statue before games and things. Oh yeah. There's, there's a massive Phillies cap that will go up on William Penn's hat. (laughs) Um, There is a clearly oversized, and when I say oversized, I mean like the size of an RV jersey that we've put on William Penn. Philly Philly is hardcore when it comes to sports, man. Like some of our fans are a little rough. (laughs) (laughs) And And they take Philly sports very seriously. And interestingly enough, when it opened in 2007, the Comcast building then became the largest building in the city. And some of the senior executives went up to the very top at the 55th floor and they put a little tiny statue of William Penn on the top of the building. That next baseball season, we won the World Series. So apparently he was okay as long as he is above the city. It was crazy. That like everybody in the city, we were convinced. We were convinced. Yes, the curse of William Penn is a thing. But then we haven't won anything since that World Series. So (laughs) what I think it is, is that we are so desperate for our teams to perform. And sometimes they just don't. And that happens, right? All of us are not at our best every day. And we just look for anything to blame. So poor so poor William Penn gets blamed for the performance of, uh, of our sports teams. It's kind of funny, though, when you see how it coincides. It's too bad you guys didn't keep winning because it really would make you think, OK, the curse is the real deal. But it would have. But it's interesting that you started going downhill right after. Kind of a coincidence there. One of the things that I discovered about City Hall that I didn't know before I did that episode was that the city of Philadelphia tried to tear it down in 1950. 
partly because it's an eyesore. I don't personally think it's an eyesore. I think it's remarkable. It's very difficult to navigate the city when you're trying to get around City Hall. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a nightmare. So the architectural organizations, the historical society, there were a number of groups that stepped in and stopped it. And part of the reason they were able to stop it is it would have cost even more to tear it down than it did to put it up back in the late 1800s. So fortunately, sometimes everything comes down to money. But I said in my episode, if if I swear to God, if anybody tried to tear that building down, I would chain myself to a statue outside. I was just going to say, seriously I seriously would. I, I would. chaining yourself to a column. You're not taking it down without me. Well, no, you're not. Well, when you love or have passion for something like that, that's how it is. Because, I mean, it's not a building, but we have a tree at Disney's Polynesian Village Resort that's been there for a long time. And it's one of the only ones on the mainland. And when we were doing our changes there, we were threatening to... If they even thought about touching that tree, we were going to go out and chain ourselves to it. We were not going to let that happen. So I can see this beautiful, absolutely historic building that you'd be even more apt to chain yourself to it. It's such a part of the city's history, and and it really is a part of the country's history, too. Just everything that we went through to get it up and all of the cases and the, and the, the criminals and the laws and the DAs and everybody that went through that building that had such an impact on our city and on our state. Like, I look at that and think, how, how could you take that down? It's remarkable to me. And when I look at it, it's it's such a strange style of architecture. And mm-hmm. by the time by the time it went up, because it took so long to build, it was very French European style of architecture. It was really modeled after like Versailles mm-hmm. and Fontainebleau from Napoleon's summer home. And by the time it went up, that style had completely gone out of style. So we were the embarrassment of the country because here's this this grand facade that everybody's making fun of because it's no longer popular. It's no longer in fashion. But it is considered one of the 150 most important architectural structures in the country, which I think is kind of cool, too. Well, I just can't believe that they would have thought of tearing that down because even if something... To me, if it's an eyesore, it means it's crumbling, it's falling down, the windows are broken out of it. I'm like, no, this is a building that's still being used. And like you said, it is so unique in structure because I was like, what kind of architectural style is that? Because it's really hard to place it. Very much so. And it it's not in a, in a state of disrepair. I mean, there have been a number of refurbishment programs going on over the last 50 years because, you know, building that old, it it needs maintenance. But it is very much a functioning city hall. There are constant trials and court cases. I mean, it's, it's a functioning legislative building. It's not a museum. But you can tour, which is really cool. So even though it's actually a place of business, they do tours. You can take a ride up to an observation deck that takes you all the way up to the bottom of where William Penn's feet are and look out over the city. So it is a bit of a a bit of a tourist attraction and a bit of a museum, even though it's a functioning place of government and business. You say like they have trials and stuff in there. Are the the rooms, because I know when we went into like Independence Hall, it was very much that that old, the wood, very, very pretty. So are the courtrooms modernized or are they kind of kept in the time as well? Some of them have become more modernized. Some of them still very much have the original moldings, the original woodwork, and and they look very period. Um, Although the furniture within them might be more modern or or some of the technology is more state of the art. But a lot of the building really holds the original traditional styles. And, And you don't realize it's eight stories tall because the way it's built on the outside 
it looks like it's three stories and it's a bit of an optical illusion because if you really looked and paid attention, you'd realize there's no way one story of a building is that big. And inside are the most exquisite and grand, you know, double wide marble staircases. There are so many sculptural facades all over the ceilings and the doorways. It's just, I mean, walking through it is an experience. It really is. And I'm surprised that there aren't more stories of hauntings coming from this building than there are, because just to look at it, it is a little bit spooky looking. When I walk through it at night, because it has a, a main courtyard and it's like four points of a compass, there actually is a compass built into the brick in the center of the courtyard when you get to the middle of the building. And it's an open courtyard. You can look up and see the clock tower and there's arches and you can come out on all four points of the building. So you come out to four of the main roads in Philadelphia and walking through there at night when it's dark and it's really dimly lit and there's just sometimes there's a mist in there. I don't know what it is about the shape of the building and, and the acoustics as well as just like heat and moisture get trapped in there. And you're waiting for something to just kind of graze the back of your neck as you're walking <laughs> through. And, uh, and I like that about it. Well, you make a great point because I know when we do ghost tours in different cities, it seems like City Hall in every one of these big cities has something going on in it because you've got all these trials going on, number one. So there's a lot of emotions involved because you may have maybe some murders that have happened. So sure. you've got emotions on both ends of that. And then I don't know, did they ever, I don't know how they worked out executions and stuff there, but I would assume that some people would have gotten to the death penalty here. People were sentenced to the death penalty, but um, I don't know of any executions that were carried out at City Hall. Okay. They might have been sentenced at City Hall and then the executions would have been carried out at the prison. So Moya Mensing Prison, which used to be in south, the southern part of Philadelphia, Eastern State Penitentiary, of course, which is, you know, out past where the art museum is today. H.H. <laughs> Holmes was actually tried at City Hall. Oh. And, yeah. And a lot of folks don't realize that because most of his crimes were in Chicago. Mm -hmm. His horrific murder hotel was in Chicago. But he was finally captured and arrested here in Philadelphia for a crime he committed here that was the very last crime of his killing spree. Oh, wow. That is very yeah. interesting. I would and have so no he idea. Was, he was incarcerated at Moya Mensing Prison and his execution was carried out at Moya Mensing, even though his trial was at City Hall. And like, that's something else that just drives me insane, but in such a good way, because when I go into that building, I think a hundred years ago, H.H. H. Holmes was in this building. Not that I want to associate with H.H. H. Holmes or anything, but that madman was finally arrested and brought to justice right here in Philadelphia. And, you know, so many folks that follow his case or Red Devil in the White City, they're, they don't know of the connection that he had to, to Philly. Huge mob family trials happened in City Hall. I don't talk about them too much because some of them still live here. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I don't want them to know where I live. I might wake up with nope. a horse head in my bed. Yeah, nope. It's interesting looking at pictures of City Hall. It is a wonderful optical illusion they have there because when you say, oh, it's got eight floors, you do look at it and go, no, there's no way there's eight floors there. But like you said, there would have to be as tall as the building is. Yeah. So when you get like, inside. I was just going to ask, are these really big windows then that they have there? They are. And when you go through the archways, so it's it's interesting because City Hall is like a giant rectangle within a rectangle. So you walk through the archways and then you wind up in the open courtyard. Once you get into the archways, the, there are doors that go into City Hall. When you're in the courtyard, you can see each story. 
So the windows are much smaller and you see each of the eight floors. And certainly when you get inside and you see how massive the staircases are, you know, with these incredible banisters and marble and it's just, it's glorious. It's, it sounds crazy. I gush over a building, but I do. I think architecturally it's unlike anything I've seen. And, and I love traveling to other historic cities. I love Boston so mm-hmm. much, so much of New England. Chicago is a remarkable city. There's, there's some other great places all over this country, New York and but this building is unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere. Do you know what it was made out of on the exterior? So there is absolutely no steel in the structure. Holy cow. It's all marble and stone. The walls are 23 feet thick. Wow. To be able to uphold the weight of the entire building, they had to be that thick because there's no steel anywhere within the structure. That blows my mind. (laughs) I'm like, I can't believe they don't have any steel in it. No, there's none. And and so what was happening at the time when it was built, like, you know, I, I say the has so much of an underbelly and it, it does. And it did during Victorian times. Like, it's not just today. You know, we had an underbelly in the 1700s. But what happens is there's so many stonemasons that were competing to work on the project. And they pretty much needed all of them because it was so massive. But about greased palms and so much money changing hands to try to, to get the contract to build this and It's all marble and stone, every bit of it. And the inside looks like it's different colors of stone and marble. It is. There's a lot of red. There's some green. There's, you know, some of the some of the parts of the inside of the building. You would go to a certain courtroom and not even realize you're in this remarkable historic building. Right. It looks very industrial, very pedestrian. But certainly, like, main staircases and the the main hallways are, are really just exquisite. There's limestone, so you are going to get a lot of different colors inside the building and the facade of the building and in a lot of the reliefs that are throughout the courtyard. Very, very nice. I was looking at an interior picture, and it looks like it was built for the William Penn statue (laughs) because the people, when they're standing near the columns and such, they look so small next to them. I love that. I love that. That's. I wish it was built just for William Penn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the cool things is apparently we do have a haunting going on here. And it's really difficult because nobody seems to really want to talk about hauntings going on there. Well, I found a little bit more information than I had the last time we talked or when I had my episode go up. So the only ghost story that I've been able to find from City Hall is about a little girl. And apparently she spends most of her time in a room called Conversation Hall. Now, that's a a huge meeting room. And it's one of the rooms that is very much entirely in the original period style of when City Hall was built. So the decor, the wallpaper, the furniture is over 100 years old. Nobody has seen her, but they hear her. They hear her giggling. They hear her running. They hear her sighing and, and kind of chuckling. So it's all auditory experiences. And there's one gentleman in particular who is a security guard on the mayor's detail. He's a police officer. And while he hasn't seen her, he's had most of the experiences with her. He's heard her quite frequently. And so about two years ago, there was a paranormal investigation. Mayor Nutter, who used to be the mayor of our of our city, agreed to do a paranormal investigation with a group called Old City Paranormal. And I think you and I both have reached out to them, just haven't been able to get in touch with them. So they had a ghost hunt overnight and they wanted to see if they could make contact with this little girl. How did she die? 
why did she want to be in that room? You know, when you think about a little girl, she'd probably want to be in a room. It looks like something out of Beauty and the Beast when okay. Belle and the Beast are dancing. It's it's like that kind of a feel. And, you know, that's something a little girl would probably love, feel like she's playing princess in, even if she's a ghost. So they did the investigation. It was about 10, 1030 at night, and they tried making contact with the spirit the security guard, his name is George, he did most of the talking, telling the little girl, you know who I am, you've seen me, I hear you in and out of this room all the time, why don't you say hi, can you make a noise, can you let me know that you're here, and there was really nothing, there was no interaction with her, unlike the interaction that he would have on just a regular night when he was watching guard. So I think that's probably part of the reason why there isn't much about this particular haunting, because when they did host a paranormal investigation, there was very little, if any, contact from her when all those other people were there trying to interact with her. So it's kind of like she is comfortable with him, but when he was bringing these right. strangers around, she didn't like that. I think that's exactly right. I think that's mm -hmm. what it is. And here's the crazy thing. So last week, and I, I think I told you this online, last week I had a voicemail and I, it was a phone number I didn't recognize, so I didn't pick it up. I am that person. I let it go to voicemail. I'm the same way. If I don't know the name, it's like, no. It was the security guard. And no. he said, I understand you're trying to reach me, that you want to talk about the little girl from City Hall. Here's my number. Give me a call. So I was super excited to hear from him. I have no idea how he got my number. It's so weird that you said that because I was going to ask you, did you reach out to him? Because literally I had just sent a message off to him and then you were like, oh, well, he's contacted me. And I was like, that is weird. And so it was, it's been a game of phone tag. I was hoping that I could at least talk to him a little bit and share some of our conversation with you today. We just haven't been able to, to connect. And, and, you know, he's been kind enough. He tried calling a few times and I was traveling for work. So not as engaged in some of my personal communication. So I'm hoping that I can connect with him and then maybe circle back with, with you both and, and share some of our conversation. But I have no idea how he found me or how he got my number. The only thing I can think of is either, which is weird, because when you contact Old City Paranormal, you would hope that they would say, hey, we got your message and we'll connect you with the guy who can give you a little bit more information. Yeah. So I don't know if it was maybe they had done that and just didn't let you know, or maybe he heard your podcast episode. Maybe he did. And, you know, of course, Diane, where my head goes at first is, how did he get my number? <laughs> like no, like it's something supernatural. How did this man oh, get my Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. The little girl made sure that he got the number. <laughs> right? And of course, that's not what happened. But there were so many big trials in City Hall. And I, and I think the other thing is that people think, especially about H.H. H. Holmes, you know, he's one of the, the most prolific and horrific serial killers in the country. And did his presence have an impact? Could that have an impact on spirits in City Hall? There's there were other ghost hunts in City Hall, too, and it was not necessarily looking for anybody in particular. It was looking at parts of the building that people would just get odd sensations in. That basement is rather terrifying looking. And there's old boilers that haven't worked in, God, decades, more than decades, but they're massive. And the building was just constructed around them. So there's no way to remove them. There are thousands and thousands of old case files from when the headquarters for Philadelphia police used to be in the building and everything just got moved to the basement. There were some hangings, but not when City Hall was there. It was just done on the land, you know, in the late 1700s. So possibilities of did that activity 
have anything to do with any paranormal activity, you know, happening around City Hall. But really, most of the stories that people talk about are the little girl, at least at least in modern day. That's the only paranormal activity I've ever been able to find information about that goes on at City Hall. Well, when I was looking at stuff, that's all I could find, too. It makes you wonder because there's no record of why she would be there. So did she have an accident? And that's why it's hard to know. No. And, you know, the, the only other thing that came out of that investigation, and it didn't have anything to do with the little girl was, you know, an emergency light shut off without anybody turning it off. I don't know that that's an indication of something. I think lighting like that could Mm -hmm. sometimes go on and off depending on are there motion sensors, are there timers, shadows near a gentleman's bathroom, down the end of a hall, size. And and so a lot of that activity is really, I think some of that are tricks of the light. It's an old building, so it's going to constantly make noises. But yeah, so for for me, some of the other some of the other activity that happened the night they did the paranormal investigation was really I don't want to say suspect, that's not the right mm-hmm. word. I think it's I think it's suggestive, right? You know, could be something, but could be something completely innocuous and mundane. Well, I get the feeling that you're very similar to us as you're an open-minded skeptic where I do believe that there is something going on. I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't immediately go, "Oh, that light just clicked off. Oh my gosh, a ghost must have done it." I was just going to ask you, since it is a little girl that's haunting this building, what are your thoughts on child ghosts? Do you have any kind of theories about that? I It's not really child ghosts versus adult ghosts. I think what happens sometimes is that for whatever reason, a spirit doesn't realize that it's time to change. It's time to transition. And, and what that transition is, you know, I can't say for sure. I think sometimes it's a, a state of confusion. I think sometimes it's it's a choice. And for whatever reason, there's an essence left over here that that didn't move on to the next stage. When I was in New Orleans, one of my first trips to New Orleans, I was out on a paranormal investigation. And it was at a hotel that at least 100 years before was an orphanage. And they did overnight investigations. They did late night investigations. They did private investigations. And they'd had documented a considerable amount of activity. And almost all of it were children because it was a place where the conditions of the orphanage were not conducive to a quality of life for the children that stayed there. And that makes me really sad, right? Because Mm -hmm. you hate to think about any child suffering at all. And okay, maybe it's a spirit. It's not a human child, but still. From everything that the security guard talks about this little girl, anytime he's heard her, she's laughing. Mm Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like she's sad. It doesn't sound like she's unhappy. But I, I I would love to know who she is and why she's there. There's I haven't been able to find any stories about uh, a little girl losing her life in City Hall. I don't know how she got there. Yeah, it's always hard to know when you don't have, you know, you would think if a little girl dies in City Hall, it would be in a paper somewhere. But right. And then and, on the and, uh, flip side, maybe they don't want that to get out either back then. That, that could be very true. And I've realized one of my favorite pastimes are reading newspaper archives because I am <laughs> that big of a nerd. So I'll read 200-year-old copies of the New York Times and it's just fabulous and fascinating because the reporting is so dramatic and so over the top. Like everybody was trying to be Dickens back then and they're only writing three lines of a, of a page five bottom half of the page article, right? Like it's not headline stuff here, but it's just, it's fantastic and it's amusing. And I have not been able to find anything about her. I would expect if there was going to be some haunting activity at City Hall, it would be, there's a part of the building that used to be an old cell where criminals would be held while they awaited trial. Mm. 
And it's actually in one of the towers of City Hall, not the the clock tower. But as you look at the four corners, they're you know the four corners are a little bit taller than the rest of the building. So it's in in the south corner. So somebody like Gary Heidnick, who was a horrific serial killer in Philadelphia in in the 80s, he was held there while he awaited trial. There was so much overcrowding in that space that I mean, it was a big problem in the in the 60s and 70s that they would have you know it was a room that could hold maybe. 75 to 100 people, and you'd have 150 criminals sitting there waiting for their trials. And and the conditions were even worse in the early 1900s. There, somebody took their own life there. Somebody fell down the rickety steps and died accidentally there. So if there's any place where it seems like that would be conducive to spirits that are unsettled and at a state of unrest, it would be that section of the building. But I, I don't know of anything that ever happened there from a haunting perspective. Well, a couple of the things you're looking at is, first of all, this is administrative type stuff, so they may not really want people talking about it. And so that would be really the only way you would know, because obviously they don't let a whole lot of ghost investigators come through and such. And sometimes the spirits just aren't interested in talking to people. So they could very well be there and just aren't interested. Or like you said, they're in a transition. They may not know. And so they're like, I don't know who you're talking to. I'm not a ghost. Right. I think I want to do the tour, even though part of me is like, you wander that building all the time. Do you really need to do the tour? Yes, I think I really need to do the formal tour and be escorted through the building by a guide and have someone that's certainly more of an expert than I am. I mean, for a layperson, I know a lot about this building, but I am not an expert. So I think it would be worth my time to do the tour and, you know, just talk to someone and ask them about, do employees talk about experiences they've had? And, you know, has anybody seen the little girl lately? I think it would be worth it to do that. Oh, I think it would. And it'll give you just the little inside thing sometimes that they know that you don't know or... Yeah. Before we let you go, there is a passion project that you've been working on that I wanted to make sure that we shared with our audience as well, because I think this is something that needs to get out there for everybody to hear. And that is For the Love of Gracie. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start crying now. (laughs) So um, Grace Packer is a young woman who uh, grew up in suburban Philadelphia, a teenager, actually. She went missing in July of 2016. And then we learned in December that she was murdered. And I wanted to help get her story out. And through learning more about what happened to her, I met these women from Abington, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia where Grace lived and went to school. And they started a charity in her name. And the charity, because Grace was a foster child and then she was adopted, she was also a victim of domestic violence in the home at the hand of her adoptive parents. The charity they started is called On Gracie's Wings. It has a Facebook page, that same name, On Gracie's Wings. And it raises money to help children in foster care, children who are transitioning into or out of foster care, to help children and families who are victims of domestic violence, and also set up scholarships for students in Abington School District. The charity started in January, and they've already established four and awarded two scholarships for the 2017-2018 school year. So these women are really, like, they are hustlers, man. They are doing so much for their community. They're doing so much to help kids in foster care in and around Philadelphia. And so as information comes out about Gracie's story or about the trial of, uh, she was actually murdered at the hands of her adoptive mother and her mother's boyfriend. So because it's local, I can go to the the hearings, although they both passed on their preliminary hearings. The trial isn't going to start until 2018, but there's an opportunity to talk to people in the community that knew her or knew of her to present her memory in a way that it's more than than just the manner of her death. So that's what I'm trying to do. We think that's absolutely great for us. It 
it touched a chord for me when I was listening to it because we don't talk about it a lot on our show, but Denise and I were foster parents for almost a year. And when you hear of a child that is in a bad enough situation that they've taken them out of their parental home or birth home, whatever you want to call it, and put them into the foster system, they've already come from something that's horrible. And then you put them into a foster situation, which, and we know because we had to go through foster classes and things like that. There are people who are in it just to get the check from the state. Which isn't much, which is ridiculous. (laughs) And we would hear things about... One of the benefits for us is the foster child we were going for was one that we knew. And so we weren't doing it for the wrong reasons, I guess you could say. Yeah. And then you think this child gets put into a home and then you reach the point where you're like, we'll go ahead and adopt. Well, this is what you want to have happen for a child is you move into the foster system. And then that home that you've been placed into has decided that they want to go forward with you permanently. And it's at the hands of this individual that you die. And to me, it just breaks my heart to think that a child goes from a really crappy situation to something that gives you hope and could be a good situation. And, you know, it's like, did she get to know any kind of joy and peace and real love? It just, that story just breaks my heart too. Yeah. You know, that's why I want to get her story out there and get information out about the charity and the women Mm -hmm. who are are running it because it's that's what tears me up the most about Gracie is she was removed because of allegations of abuse. Parental rights were terminated. She was abused by her adoptive father and then he went to jail and then she was abused and murdered at the hands of her adoptive mother and her mother's boyfriend. And there has to be something good to come out of this. And what these women in the community where she lived are doing to carry on her memory in a positive way and help other children and make sure that other children don't go through what she does. And some of the local Pennsylvania legislature really digging into what happened. How did this happen? What do we need to do differently in our state to be more vigilant and to prevent something like this from happening again? So, so if we continue telling this that side of the story, then maybe something good will come out of this. Well, on a, a brighter note, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how far along you are with it, but Denise, she is thinking about at least doing a series on the Salem Witch Trials. Whoa, that will be awesome. I am. So I've I've gone ahead and announced that I'm going to do it. It's either going to start on June 10th or September. It's probably going to be September because I would really love to take the summer to to just really refine everything and, and get it to the point where I want it to be, which would be when the last victim was murdered. And that's really what I call it, the, the victims of the Salem Witch Trials. Mm-hmm. That's when Giles Corey was murdered. But I am an obsessive historian about the Salem Witch Trials. It's really annoying when people ask me about it because then I won't shut up. I'm like the Energizer Bunny because <laughs> you got it. You got to take my batteries out. And I think you guys can tell, like, I just, I get kind of excited over things to begin with. The idea got into my head and I couldn't let go of it. And then when I mentioned it sort of lightheartedly as a joke, I had so many listeners email me or message me on social media and say, please do this. So I'm going to do it. And I'm struggling. You know, I thought, should I call it Twisted Salem? Because Twisted is the brand. And then one listener said, how about Twisted Witches? And I really like that. So I think that's what we're going to go with, Twisted Witches. And it's it should be launching in September because what I want to do is put all the episodes out at once. It's probably not going to be more than 10 episodes because, you know, it's, it's very finite. I found a book from the late 1800s that was reprint of the entire court transcript from the court of Oyer and Terminer from the entire season of Hysteria every case, every hearing. And obviously I I can't put this entire book in there, but it's, there's so much detail in there. And, you know, so I really want to, I really want to have an opportunity to include some of that. Well, Dina, before we let you go, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you on social media and how to find out more about your show? 
Sure. So I'm on Twitter at twisted underscore Philly. I'm on Facebook. It's the Twisted Philly podcast. The website is twistedphilly.com. And I'm on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Overcast, all of the uh, traditional podcast applications, depending on your device. And really, thank you guys. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to record with you. Well, it's been great having you on too. I mean, like I said, I've, I'm a fangirl, so I, I was thrilled to have you come on. Oh, and Denise, before I go, so I wanted to let you know, I heard your question in the episode you guys did about fairies. If brownies in Girl Scouts were named after fairies, Mm -hmm. uh, named after the brownies specifically, brownie type of fairy. And yes, they sort of were. So I'm a Girl Scout troop leader. The brownies used to be called rosebuds. Now, this is going back in, you know, when they when the scouts were first founded in 1912 and they didn't like the name. So they went to Lord Biden Powell, who is the founder of Boy Scouts. And then he was the one who helped Juliet Lowe create the Girl Scouts. And they asked him to come up with a new name. And he's the one that picked brownies, which does harken back to brownies in folktales. So you were correct. That was so exciting to me. I'm like, yay. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm sure that's coming out of left field. But Denise no. was right. Nope. Denise was right. Maybe Quakers creating oats was out of left field. But brownies <laughs> being named after fairies was not. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I love my peanut gallery over here when I say things like, do you know what Quakers are known for? Oats. <laughs> <laughs> hey, got to keep her, keep her, you know, on her toes. Gotta keep her on her toes. All yeah. the time. Well, that's one thing you and I definitely share is the gift of gab. So we're looking forward to someday meeting you in person. But I would love like my my travel itinerary planner is already going click, 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 click. I would love to host you guys in Philadelphia and spend some time together and take you all over and just show you the best of the city. And and of course, where all the best haunting is. So. All right. Well, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in the future. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Is Philadelphia City Hall haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, that was a lot of fun, Denise. We've been wanting to get Dina on here for a while. And so I'm just glad that all everything seemed to come together perfectly so that we were able to record together. That was fabulous. Yes, it was. And, you know, we always talk about synchronicity with the show and how things happen. Like we'll hear from a lot of listeners that will put up a show and they'll be like, oh, you put up that show and it was on my birthday and it really meant a lot to me. It'll be a location that they have on their mind or that they've been thinking about or that they pass by or something. And so it's almost like that location is speaking to them because something personally happened to them. And then we put up an episode about that location. So we have this stuff going on around here all the time. Well, it happened with this episode as well. We recorded this with Dina probably, I don't know, about two weeks ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. And as you heard, she has this project that she's been working on for the love of Gracie. And so we mentioned that we had this foster son for almost a year. Well, we hadn't talked to him in what, 18 years, Denise? Yeah, something. (laughs) It was 16, 17, 18 years, long time. And when he disappeared out of our life, we had no more contact with him. So we didn't know what became of him. If that almost year that we had him in our home, if we made any kind of a difference in his life. Strangely enough, all of a sudden we got contacted last week via Messenger on Facebook that he found us on there and was communicating with us. And I don't want to get into all the personal details and everything, but we were able to find out that he did do well and that we did make a difference. So I just thought, wow, that's amazing. We were just talking to Dina about being foster parents. We don't usually talk about it much. And then we get that contact. 
Yeah, and it's really neat because we're building a relationship with him, a continued relationship. So that's super special. And kind of in a in a way, Diane doesn't like this, but she's now a grandma. I was just about to say, <laughs> I, I really don't know if I like having this contact back again, because I was like, oh, I'm never going to be a grandma. Okay. Yeah. So, so via, via our foster son, we have four foster grandchildren, I guess. So that's really <laughs> exciting too. They're adorable. Yeah. So that was fabulous. On our next episode, it's number 200, Denise. Woohoo! 200. That is big number. I can't even believe we have put together 200 official podcasts. We've had specials and road trip shows and such, but there's 200 official. So we thought, well, we have to do something really cool for the 200th episode. So, you know, we talk a lot about hauntings, Denise, and and how do we know about a lot of the hauntings going on in various locations? Because people have tempted the spirits. Yeah, there's this little thing called ghost hunting. Yep. And for two and a half years, we've been doing the History Ghost Bump podcast, and we've never talked really a lot about ghost hunting. So we thought, and it was suggested to us by a couple of our listeners, why not talk about the history of ghost hunting? That would be super cool. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk about the equipment that's used and what those different pieces of equipment do. And also, Denise, I was at the grocery store the other day and we have our little friend there that bags our groceries quite a bit, Diana. She listens to the podcast and she said, have you guys ever done an episode on how you could protect yourself from things attaching to you or things haunting you? And I said, no, but we're planning on doing a history of ghost hunting for show number 200. Why don't we throw that in there, too? So we'll be talking about that as well. Yes, so hopefully we'll be able to give some protection to those of you who choose to tempt the spirits. And when you get to show number 200, it's a time to reflect and look back over the show. So we will have some announcements about some new things coming for the show in the future. Then we have a couple of reviews to share. First one is from Panda2988. Just amazing five stars. I love history and ghosts. If you want to feel like you're sitting in your living room with your friends, then this podcast is for you. Packed with facts and frights. The chemistry between these two gals is fantastic. I binge listen to these guys every day at work. Well, thank you so much for that, Panda. We appreciate that. And DeLeon0515, great podcast, five stars. I love the mix of ghost stories and history. Very informative. Love it. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Thank you so much to you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Sweet dreams. Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. 
so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.